because you're jumping back into the gap. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Get the best instructional coaching with ImmersionVideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then ImmersionVideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Cassio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more. Try ImmersionVideos.com today and become an even better coach. Excited to welcome Washington Wizard assistant coach Zach Guthrie to the basketball podcast. Zach is an assistant coach for the Washington Wizards. Zach began his career as an assistant video coordinator for two years with the San Antonio Spurs and later served as the manager of advanced scouting for the Orlando Magic from 2012 to 2015. Guthrie joined the Washington Wizards after spending the 2020-21 season with the Dallas Mavericks. Prior to Dallas, Guthrie spent five seasons, 2015 to 2020, as a member of the Utah Jazz organization. In 2021, he became an assistant coach for the Washington Wizards. He has twice been the head coach of an NBA Summer League team for the Jazz and the Wizards. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, I got a chance to watch you work this past summer at uh, Summer League. Got a chance to watch uh, you run a practice and uh, talk to me a little bit about that. You've done that twice now, been the head coach of a Summer League team. How important is that to your development as a coach? You know, one of the most unbelievable experiences I've had. Um, you know, really lucky, and I really appreciate uh, Wes Ansel, you know, giving me the chance to coach the Summer League team. I think, you know, just for, especially for an assistant coach, right, this is my only real opportunities I've had to be a head coach. So any of those opportunities you get, you want to make the most of. And, uh, you know, I was unbelievably lucky to get that experience and just to try, you know, new things and try out some things. You know, you you think you have these philosophies and these ideas and then, you know, you get in the moment to really get to to use them and see what works, what doesn't work. And, you know, just how many decisions go into being a head coach. It, it really gives you the empathy for the head coach and gives you more of an opportunity to support them later on, understanding what they're going through. That empathy is so important. That's that's great. And uh, I had I checked back in my notes and I had three things, main things written down. I had a bunch of things written down. But the three main things were he asked questions, he used recreate and then kill cut was one of the vocabulary. So let, let's first talk talk about the importance of asking questions, because I saw you do that within within the practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to check for understanding. I think sometimes, you know, this isn't a lecture. This is a dynamic thing that we're doing with players. And, you know, we really want to see if they're real. If I'm just I don't want to just talk into space for my own sake. You know, I want them. I want to see what they're picking up, what they're understanding, because, you know, sometimes you'd be surprised what you talk about and they actually take from it. So just checking for the understanding, see what they're doing and, you know, really using the Socratic method to try to elicit from them some some feedback and some response on what they're seeing, what they're feeling, because they're the ones that have to play the game. They're the ones that have to make the reads and make the decisions. And I want to I want to get that feedback from them. Like, hey, what did you see there? What's going on? Why do we run this play? Why do we run this action? You know, what advantage are we creating by this? How did you get 
what was the defense you encountered and what did you see? You know, all those things I think are are really key to understanding what the players are going through and if our, you know, what we're trying to teach is transferring to them. It, it was a great example of modern teaching and, uh, you know, again, making your athletes active participants in the learning process. And then going hand in hand with that is recreate. I use the word recreate too. Some people use rewind. Talk to us about what that means when you say recreate. Yeah, sometimes, you know, a lot of times we use it when, you know, maybe there was a decision that, you know, maybe we think or don't think was the correct decision. But I think also you can even recreate at times when it was a great decision. And it's like, hey, let's let everyone see why this was great. Because sometimes it's a little thing that's really a big thing. And you want to keep emphasizing and modeling that behavior that you're looking for. So sometimes we'll recreate and say, hey, that was a great job on that kill cut, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And this is why. And this is what it creates. And, you know, it, and it, just to help them visualize and see that and know the why and understand the context and everything and having, you know, maybe like the player that made the decision understood it, but the other guys were on defense. They were so locked into their assignment. It's another chance for learning for them, for them to learn and grow from that experience, from that, you know, moment. It's a super way to be able to connect skills and decisions and perception, action, coupling, and all those things in that moment. And I so encourage coaches to investigate it if they don't use such a technique to be able to coach while they play the game, which is the other part of it. And uh, within your practice, I saw a lot of game-based play as well. That's great. You know, it's fun. It's so funny how, you know, as coaches, what we think in the moment, you know, like after the practice, I think I remember like even apologizing to you. I'm like, oh, sorry, that was kind of messy and chaotic and I didn't feel great about it. But that's where the learning is. That's where the growth is. And that's the good stuff, you know, and, and as a coach, you want things to be perfect or you want to be, you know, so organized and this and that. But to be able to flow instinctively and read and react to a practice as a coach, just like a player, you know, you have to go like we got a different gym at the last second and, you know, something happened that our printer was late on the practice plan. You know, all these little things that happened that in your mind made it a crazy practice. You know, you came in and were like, that was great. I loved it. You know, it was fun. And, you know, to me, I was like, absolute chaos. But I think those are the important things. Well, actually, what you said was a compliment to me, because I, I know, like, to a certain extent, you know, you and I, we go watch practice sometimes, and it's clean and all that stuff. But to me, the compliment is when somebody comes to my practice, and I would actually tell you, I actually valued the mess, because that's mm -hmm. when the learning, the learning is in the struggle, the learning is in the mess. And, uh, you know, I thought, you know, at, especially at the NBA level, I hadn't seen a lot of practices where the mess was embraced quite like they were at yours. And I think that was tremendous. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that a lot. Fun. You know, that's what you see Spolster talking about. The, the It's part of the journey, right? The struggle is part of the journey right now. And he's talking about the heat and the success they're having. So I think it's very important. Big part of it. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about a whole bunch of things, but a holistic approach to basketball is one of the main topics, which I love. So maybe just give us a broad understanding of what that means, a holistic approach to basketball. Yeah, I think that's something... Like, I think right now we as coaches have a tendency to be too siloed. You know, we want to just look at the micro, the little the little skills and the the drill and this, you know, this play and this thing. And I think it's all about, like you said, connecting it to the game and understanding the concept on the context. You know, the easiest way to talk about it is first is like in the player development standpoint, you know, an individualized player development. We want to have these boutique one on one. Everything's about, you know, Billy and his player development and his growth. But you have to understand how that transfers to the team, to the five on five element. You know, so much we, we take this out of context and they get so lost in this individual skill that it's about how does it transfer to the team and how can we get as much team growth as possible and understanding the context of what you can do to contribute to the team. And that's what I mean by the holistic approach. 
You know, we just want to look at it from a whole view. We don't want to look at it just what's best for you. What, what, what makes sense for you as a basketball player on a court with four other teammates? And how can you enhance their growth in addition to yours? And I think at the same time, it's, you know, it's a team thing because it's about how can we get the end of, I think one of the biggest things for us as coaches, we lose sight of, you know, same thing in the micro, we get lost in these drills. It's about our job as coaches is to turn an individual and get them to buy into the collective, right? You see that when those, when players do that, when they subsume their ego and buy into something bigger than themselves, that's when you see good teams become great teams. And I think you look at all of the successful programs over the years in the NBA, I'm very biased. That's what I know the most about. So I'll, you know, make the analogies to the NBA. And, you know, you look at right now, the Golden State Warriors that won the last championship, they have something that's bigger than themselves. They talk about joy. They talk about the ball movement, the way they fly around screens and move the ball. The Miami Heat that I talked about, the grit, the toughness, right? They're, they're buying into something bigger than themselves. You got all their guys on the team that are, you know, Kyle Lowry, championship player. You know, Kevin Love's one of the champions. They're taking charges. They're leading the team in charge. You know, they have this belief in something bigger than themselves and buying into something. And I think you also saw it with, you know, Phil Jackson and his teams with the Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. He has the one of the best talent to ever play this game in Michael Jordan. And all of his messaging to him is about getting him to buy into enhancing the strengths of his teammates and knowing when he can take over and do these things. And I think that, you know, it's the culture buzzword, but those are the things that everyone has a different way of doing it. You know, Phil Jackson's Zen Buddhism is different than Eric Spolstra's toughness, grit, you know, bunker mentality, parachute us in and Steve Kerr's joy, right? There's all, everyone has to be themselves as a coach. You have to be authentically you, but at the end of the day, you're getting people, individuals who are all immensely talented to buy into something collective and bigger than themselves. And the more you can tap into that, you know, the better. So I love that and such a great example. So talking about this siloed approach that we traditionally have followed, and especially I think at the lot of the lower, lower, lower levels, we're still stuck in a lot of those areas where it's like build this player in a lab separate from the team and then put them in the team. And now we're supposed to be good. And the co it's all on the coach to bring them together as mm -hmm. opposed to what's a better alternative for us if we're a high school coach and we have a player we want to develop. How should we be not not siloing, but connecting them to everything we're doing? I think it starts with giving them the why and giving them the context. And as much as we can bring in other players, and I, I know not everyone has the resources that we do. You know, in the NBA, we're very lucky and privileged in that standpoint. But as much as you can make it five on five, three on three, you know, whatever you've got, use it to make a decision. No matter what your resources you have on hand, you can use these things. But generally avoiding one-on-one workouts and instead having two-on-two, three-on-three workouts, group workouts are more effective is what you're saying, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. As much as you can get group workouts with players, one-on-one, two-on-two, three-on-three, four-on-four, five-on-five, it doesn't matter. You know, any of those times you can get them interacting because at the end of the day, it's a dance. You know, you can't understand, like, you can't teach spacing in one-on-one. And if you ask almost every coach in the world, what's one thing you can, ah, spacing, spacing. Well, to teach spacing it's with other players. It's a living, breathing organism. Spacing changes. You'll never see the same spacing every time, right? And you have to read and react to your, uh, you know, the players on your team. So I think the only way you can do it is to go through it. And you have to have it with, you know, other people involved. And you can't do that in a one-on-one -on -one workout. So I totally agree. And I do believe that at your level, the only difference is, say, coaches are playing defense rather than, yeah. you know, say, offense versus defense. And somewhat at the college level as well, that's happening. 
But at the high school level, it's it's I feel it's even easier. And it's just to have group workouts. And I know there's restrictions in certain states about the number of players that can be there, et cetera. But have the max number there and then design your workout. So it's not everyone one on on air, but there's some interactivity. Right. And that you're creating these decision making situations. Is it that simple? Absolutely. I think so. As much time as you can put them, you know, into these into the context of the game and have them making decisions and able to, you know, create these things and this advantage, you know, this basketball thing, and then we can stop it and recreate it. Like, hey, what happened there? And that's where you can really do the teaching. You know, it's like creating the environment and letting them thrive. You know, it's like more like gardening than it is, you know, building a house. Are, are players adapting to this? Because again, when I started Basketball Immersion in 2014, I started sharing some of these ideas. I remember talking to some NBA people back then and they said, well, you know, players, they're used to this. They're used to being by themselves and doing this workout. But I've seen a big change and a big shift, at least at the places I've been to. Is that the same for you? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of buy-in from players. Um, I think it, it's also everything's about how you present it. Right. And if you you drip things in, you find ways to do it and make it fun and make it competitive. Those are the two like the two cheat codes in coaching, you know, make it fun or make it competitive. And you got buy-in. You know, no matter what it is, guys like to compete. Guys like to have fun. You know, that's that's natural and innate in them. And if you can do that and you can kind of, you know, slowly work in these things, these decision making that might seem a little foreign at first or a little little different than your traditional workout. Guys love it. You know, they buy in, they get to compete, they get to talk a little trash. You know, you get the fun interplay back and forth. You get a lot of buy in on it. Can you talk to us a little bit about some other ways that you make it competitive, say, at the NBA level to give coaches an understanding? Yeah, a lot of things. Sometimes it's just a number. Like a lot of times, sometimes it's just like, hey, you got to get X many or this happens. This punishment happens as simple as that. You know, there's not, not it doesn't need more than that. But a lot of times it's, you know, versus a coach. And so, you know, we'll have a drill where you have to make a pass. You pass out of something to make the decision. And then once it's there, you flash in the paint and it's one on one, you know, versus the coach. And, you know, we go nuts if the coach stops them and does this stuff. And, you know, that gets the competitive juices flowing and they really want to make the right read and make the right decision and all this stuff. And, you know, it's just simple stuff. Like it doesn't have to, you don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, just bring out what's innate in players and put them in an environment where they get to compete and have fun and, you know, have elements of, you know, growth opportunities there. Well, and the other part of fun is improving is fun, isn't it? So talk to us a little bit about how you help the player understand that they are improving and noticing their improvement. I think that's the key is, is just the noticing and the pointing out. You know, one one thing, um, you know, so I was doing a workout today with one of our younger players. And one of the things I was really trying to train and focus on was his eyes. You know, I wanted to train his eyes because you can't make a decision on something you can't see. And his ability to scan the floor and get his eyes around and make that decision. And, you know, I think we have to divorce process from results at times, you know, because it's such a binary world in basketball. You know, you win or you lose, you made it or you missed it, you know. And I think we get caught up in that. And I think in these opportunities for growth, you can look at, hey, I know you didn't make that shot, or I know you turned the ball over and the coach stripped you right there, but your eyes were in the perfect spot. You were able to see, or, or it might be the, the reverse. Like, hey, this is why this is happening, right? You're looking over here. You got to scan in your peripheral. You got to do this to be able to see and make this decision. So I think you can find these little moments of growth without, you know, being obvious as to, oh, yesterday I went five for seven from three. Today I went, you know, four for seven. I got worse or this isn't working. You know, it's like, hey, here, you got to show them this is how the growth is happening and this is where it's happening. 
yeah, as you said, divorce it from the outcome. It's 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 the process and noticing those things. It's just great. Uh, scanning. I want to dive deeper since you brought that up because I mean, there's tons of research, most of it in soccer, unfortunately, but it still applies. And talk to us about eyes because I think again, there's this mentality when we see a lot of these siloed workouts. Oh, you've got to look up, you've got to keep your head up, and all this other stuff. But that's not really how players play basketball, is it? Scanning is a constant visual gaze, and it's not necessarily looking in one spot or looking up at all. Absolutely. And it's not that I'm necessarily, a lot of times in how I'm training the eyes, is it's not looking in a specific spot or your head is in a specific place. I want you taking constant snapshots, you know, and however that works for you, if that's your head, if that's scanning, if that's, you know, moving, whatever it is, it's, you know, this is not, there's not one size fits all for any of this. Every player is different and how they, you know, operate and how they look. It's more like I'm giving them visual cues, even something as simple as hands. Like they see my hands, they got to deliver the pass at that moment. Or it's a number, they got to repeat the number back. Whatever it may be, there's lots of different ways to do this and lots of ways to be creative. But it's about training their eyes to see the floor at all times and not just focus on one tunnel vision target of the rim or my ball handling routine or whatever it is. When it's siloed like that, it's easy to you know have mastery in that. But maybe you're not able to transfer that to the game because you're not able to see these other visual cues to make the decision. Well, I love that. You're speaking my language with BDT, basketball decision training, with the different visual cues and the different things like that. And again, it's a way to be able to bridge on air to live and to be able to stimulate them in that way. And it's just great stuff. Talk to me about you as an art curator. I love that uh, analogy. Yeah. You like art? uh, I do not. You know, I wouldn't call myself anything special at art. It's just kind of how uh, how I've thought about it, how I've thought about player development, you know, early on. In my career, um, I got a, I was very lucky. I had a chance to work with Quinn Snyder in Utah, and he, he was awesome, and he gave me an unbelievable opportunity to work with Joe Ingles. And Joe is a phenomenal player, and um, I was very lucky. And, and one of the things I thought of with him is, because we still thought, you know, we believe in a big Quinn thing, is anyone can get better at any age. Like, player development is not, doesn't stop at 18 or 25, right? Everyone can continue to get better. And Joe is such a good player and so adaptable. And just watching him what I what I started to find, um, and it was my first time really working with a player, right? So you want to be deferential to a veteran player that's won a EuroLeague championship, had a great career, you know, in Barcelona and Australia, all these other places. You want to be deferential to them. So I sat back and I watched. I just watched what his game was, how he played, what he did. And then where the art curation comes in, you know, it's like, there, here's his oeuvre. And I'm going to say, these are the things that I think best define you as an artist, right? You know, for Joe, it's getting left and pick and roll, like very dominant. When he can get to his left hand and pick and roll, he's a dominant player. And it's like, here's all the ways you can get left. And it's like, lean into that, do that more. And to be able to shoot, catch and shoot threes, you know, let's do that. And it's kind of like, it's just simple. And like the way I call it is just define and refine. You define, these are the things that you do well, and then you refine it and like cut it down, pare it down. I think so much in, you know, as coaches and everyone, we want more, more, more. But less is better. Simple is better. Detailed simplicity is what we strive for. You know, we want these few things that you can really excel at on an NBA court and replicate night in, night out. Because that's one of the hardest things to do is consistency, right? So if we are detailed, simplistic about the things we want, we think if we can do that night in, night out and replicate that. I I love that. I love the phrase refine and define. That's just great. And you mentioned getting better at any age. And let's let's qualify that because I think too often people think about player development as always adding something to your game. 
you mm-hmm. think about a lot of the greats like LeBron, what he's doing now, it's not necessarily that he's adding more. He's just getting better at understanding, and that's a true expertise, distinguishing mm-hmm. the unimportant from the important, right? So it's helping them be more efficient and more effective because of that. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times when you watch the greats, you know, so much of that you think what's complicated is actually simple, right? There's a lot of eye candy in different ways they get to it, but they get to simple, elemental, basic building block things over and over and over again in different ways. And that's what really sets them apart. And that's what makes them great. And obviously, the more time they have, the smarter they are. LeBron is, you know, speaking of artists, you know, he is one of the most, yeah. you know, the most brilliant basketball players to ever walk this earth. His mind is incredible. And he's able to pull from that Rolodex to make all these decisions. And I think the best to do that is they just are able to be efficient and simple in what they do. You mentioned uh, Engels, like this this detail of being able to get to his left on the ball screen. Um, talk to us. How are you determining those type of things? Is it analytics? Is it video? Is it discussion with players? All of the above and more. Talk to us about that. Yeah, all of the above. I think that's that's important. I think especially in player development and individual player development, you know, your your buy-in, you know, to use like a, you know, gambling or whatever term, to, just to get buy-in is your tactical and technical proficiency, right? You have to get buy-in for the player to get into the game. You got to show that you know what you're talking about. You can get them better. These are ways I can help you, right? And then once you have that buy-in, then you start working on the connection, right? Because you can't, you can only take so much, someone as far as you know them and as, as they trust you and as you trust them. So I think, you know, then you slowly connect with the player. You have this tactical proficiency which gets you in. And then you have this connection. You get to know them. You get to understand their game, the deeper nuances of it. And then you can have these conversations and you can elicit feedback. You know, hey, what are you seeing out there? What are you liking? How, oh, they're sending you right? All right, well, here's some solutions to get back to your left hand. Or, hey, you're a great off the dribble three-point shooter going right. Let's work on that. And then, you know, obviously interleaved with all that, you're weaving in film, you're doing all those things. And, you know, you're doing the on-court things, the simple you know, for me, a lot of times it all comes down to footwork. You know, those are the two things I talk about in player development a lot are feet and eyes. You know, I think your eyes to scan the floor and your feet to get to the places you need to go and being efficient with your footwork and simple with your footwork. So Joe is all about how can I simply create space and get to where I need to go, even if I'm not the most athletic player in the world, that with the efficiency of my movement and my feet, I can get to wherever I want on the court. Okay, footwork. We need to talk about this with an expert like yourself. Because I think, again, when we talk about fundamentals, we talk about footwork, we picture dribbling on air, jump stop, pivot, pass back to a partner. And that's how a lot of people define footwork. So talk to us about what actually is footwork in terms of you developing a player. Yeah, great question. I think there's, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it. And, you know, we start with kind of like, I kind of like starting with giving them like block practice and just seeing the things and. A lot of times I like showing them film so they see players doing it and understanding what exactly, you know, because sometimes maybe I'm not the best person to, you know, display this and I know how to do it and work on it. But, you know, giving them multiple pictures, you know, hey, here's Luka Doncic doing this footwork. You know, here's Milos Teodosic. Here's, you know, Chris Paul, you know, the best footwork pick and roll setup guys, you know, in the game. Here's them doing it. And now let's see it. And now let's work on it. And now they have this menu. And then you start, you know, working this into everything you do. And that's one of the things I like to do is just in like every pick and roll drill we do, there has to be a setup. There has to be footwork to create the advantage, right? And then we can take that little advantage and turn it into a big advantage, right? But at the end of the day, 
there's no pick and roll without setup. And we have to have setups in our game. And then, like, it's it's harped on and done in everything. You know, I think in everything in basketball, you are what you emphasize. And players that work with me know I, I talk about footwork all the time. And that's the thing I'm going to tell them every single time. Is what are you doing with your feet? How are you setting it up? What's your prep? Everything starts from the feet. We, we agree on that. So you talked about giving them a mental picture with video and then basic understanding with block practice. And then from there is your next step to make it a little bit more variable. So they have to be able to read and make a decision. Exactly. You know, we try to use a coach as a defender so we can have it a little more targeted and kind of maybe give them reads, you know, per se. And then, you know, so now they're in game like pick and roll situations, you know, in, in pick and roll locations, you know, because I think the different locations of pick and roll dictate your footwork. You know, there's different setups and different things in different locations on the floor. You know, deep corner pick and roll is different than middle pick and roll, which is different than an angle pick and roll, right? Your spacing and the geometry of the court dictate that to you. So, you know, understanding those different locations, the primary locations where pick and rolls happen and how we set up and how we do. So we'll just play live out of those places and then we'll recreate and talk about, hey, what could you have done here? Oh, how was he playing you? What's a different solution to that problem? And then you mix in coverages because that's one of the other things, too, is, you know, these guys in the NBA, you know, they're seeing a lot of different coverages, being able to read and react on the fly, being able to have solutions to those different coverages. And this is opposed to doing 10 reps of the same footwork over and over again, which we still see, um, again, especially in the online world, because it looks good and it looks clean and it looks perfect. But the reality is every single time you apply footwork, you first have to make a decision based on perception. And that's what you're trying to create for them. Absolutely. Exactly. And then on the, you know, layering into it, you know, adding the different, you know, parts of it. Now they come off this pick and roll. It's two on two. They're doing it. I'm on the weak side. If I show my hands, they got to pass because their eyes still have to be scanning. So no matter what, you're still, you know, you can layer in these different things to it. Yeah. Layering, adding challenge, those different things. It's such a part of it. And, uh, you know, I, I, we think about it for an NBA player, but I think about it for my daughters as well. Um, and I'm not sure your approach. My approach is always hard first, and then we can always unload it or decouple it if we need to. And I'm curious if that is something that you apply or how do you approach that in terms of adding layers? Yeah, I usually do what you do. Uh, same thing. I, I start with the hardest thing first and, you know, we go from there and try to celebrate the struggle. You know, I was actually talking to one of our coaches about it. It's one of the most fascinating things. You know, every player is different. You got to, you know, that's where the connection is important is when you're working with a player and you understand, hey, this player gets frustrated easily. I'm not going to let him bang his head against the wall and keep getting frustrated and doing it. I'm going to, you know, how I approach him, when I pull him aside, when I have a talk with him, you know, when I give him a little piece of advice and, you know, pull him away from the, you know, the conflict and the anger and like, hey, I'm not going to have this guy who maybe isn't the best shooter in the world make 10 in a row or something to go to a next spot. It's understanding the player. And like, that's where it can be, you know, like, I talk about not having a boutique approach, but you have to have a boutique approach and understanding of people, right? That emotional intelligence is the key in understanding who you're working with and how you want to set this drill up. So I wouldn't say that every drill is always the hardest first with this person. You know, it's like it, it depends is the answer. You know, the time of year, what you're looking for. Sometimes, you know, a day before a game, looking for confidence. I want this player to feel good, feel great going into the game. So let's make it so they feel good and they're they're having success at this and we can carry that over. So. It, it depends on a, on a on the player, on the time of year, you know, all those different variables. Such an excellent point. Thank you for sharing that. Because again, comfort and confidence is part of our job as well, to be mm -hmm. able to connect the player with their comfort and confidence. And uh, 
That's that's a big part of player development. Another part of player development, which I'm curious about from your perspective as an assistant coach, is how much of it are you connecting? You mentioned connecting team stuff, but how much are you connecting to the head coach so that you're applying what the head coach might feel is best for this player? Absolutely. You know, you hit on a very important thing, and that's, you know, alignment within an organization and a team, you know, and that and that's great is you always want to you know, have that dialogue with your head coach. And because your job as an assistant is to support and make his job, life and job easier, right? That's what you're trying to do. So you're trying to understand what he wants, having these dialogues and being able to execute those things and having everyone on the same page within your organization is key. If you can get that, that's what the best teams, the best organizations have that are able to push forward is they have everyone in alignment. And like you said, it's, it's a simple thing, but I, you know, you talked about like the define and refine and like the power of language. You know, everyone's speaking the same language. If the coach calls it a pick and roll, you call it a pick and roll. You don't call it a ball screen, you know, and like getting everyone on the page with that, speaking the same language. So when you're talking about these decisions, when you're talking about recreating, everyone knows exactly what you're saying. And I think if you have that, then you can go a long way, you know, as, as a team, as an organization and just making sure. And that's that's not easy. And it's done through constant dialogue, hard conversations, mistakes, and then checking back in on them. You know, all of that's part of the process. So are you, is someone observing you sometimes or occasionally uh, or like providing like peer feedback or is, what is the process for you? I mean, maybe a little bit different at this point in your career, but early in your career, what was some of the process for you to be able to improve your player development workouts? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there is, you know, feedback. I think every time, luckily, we're we have a lot of great coaches here and, you know, it's not just you know, a video guy helping me rebound. It's other assistant coaches are involved in it. And we kind of, you know, we have a way of, we try to like, all right, I run part of it. Now I hand something off to you and you do it. And then afterwards we can get together and be like, hey, did you like that? How did that flow? What did you think? Was my messaging good on that? You know, you can have that feedback with the coach and you can talk and be like, hey, you know, we did this drill. So first time I did it, like, did you like how it flowed? No, not really. And I think that stuff is so important, um, you know, just with peers and with, you know, it doesn't, and it doesn't matter who it is. You know, even if it's a young coach or, you know, someone that's an intern, ask them what they thought. They could, they, everyone has a unique perspective and has an ability to help you grow. And I think the more you can ask pointed questions, the better you become. You know, the ability to go out and solicit that feedback, it really helps you. Hey, coach, brief interruption from our podcast. Are you ready to take your coaching to the next level? Thousands and thousands of coaches have already benefited from Basketball Immersion's membership community, and you can be next. Join us as an individual coach or take advantage of our exclusive pricing for staff or club members and unlock valuable learning resources with access to cutting-edge basketball and coaching concepts that will save you time and improve your coaching and your players' enjoyment of practices and games. Take advantage of this opportunity today. Go to www.basketballimmersion.com. Yeah, I love that. That's one of the parts I miss about not coaching at the higher levels is having people around you like that, that you can interact with and learn with. And uh, such a fun part of the process. I know you mentioned, uh, you know, you know, as an art curator, as player development, uh, we want to always work in the team context. Now, talk to us a little bit about connecting this player development to the offensive philosophy of your team. What are we doing in terms of connecting all this so that we make sure the player is not just better individually, but they're better when they get a chance to play for your team? That's the hardest part, honestly, is, you know, being able to take all these disparate parts and put them together and that everyone understands how they function within that system. 
I think it starts with, like you said, having a philosophy in general, having something that you believe in. To me, a lot of the things that I believe in offensively are just man and ball movement. That's one of the most important things. And the reason it's, it's a great Pep Guardiola quote, and he's talking about, we move the ball to move the defense. You know, sometimes it's like, why are we moving the ball? Because now the strong side becomes the weak side. The weak side becomes the strong side. And now we can create an advantage, right? And that's what we talk a lot about is like playing advantage basketball, right? We want to create a little advantage and turn it into a big advantage. And then when we get an advantage, we want to keep an advantage, right? And that's spacing, ball movement, driving kick. You know, that's where it all ties in. But we want to play this advantage basketball as much as possible. And that involves moving the ball. And I think that involves, uh, there's like a certain fluidity and everyone understanding how to play. Like, that's where I think it's important that we teach them how to play and not teach them plays. You know, and that's where I think you can even do that individually. Obviously, that has to come in three on three, small sided games, you know, even combinations, you know, having player development with the point guard and the five together. So that, you know, they're the guys that interact a lot and pick and roll and these types of things. So, you know, finding these different ways that you can have the players interact and understand how they function with each other and how what they do impacts what, you know, a teammate does. I love that Pep quote. That's so, so cool. And he, I mean, people that haven't studied him, he's someone to study for sure. Uh, talk to me about detailed simplicity. I think our, our job is to distill down what we believe into elemental parts. You know, you have to have a few things you believe in. And that simplicity is what allows you to get players to buy in. The important thing is for us to be as simple as we possibly can to explain it to everyone, right? If I have a concept, I want to be able to explain it to a third grader. And a third grade basketball player can understand it just like I would explain it to an NBA player. I would do it the exact same way. And I think that's our goal. That's what we're looking to do, right, is to get that level of simplicity. But that doesn't mean like our things are shoot the ball, rebound the ball, defend the ball, right? There's detailedness to this, right? So we want to have things as simple as they could possibly be. And then there was, a, it takes a lot of thought to get something really simple at times. It absolutely does. And, uh, you know, something that you did simplify when you talked about advantage basketball, you talked about get it, keep it, use it and yep. simplicity in your language. But I specifically want to talk about keep it. Because I don't feel like enough coaches spend enough time on leveraging that advantage once you create it. We can talk about creating it, sure, but once you have it, how do you keep it? Can you talk about some of the different ways that you can keep it? Yeah, one of the most important ways to keep it is spacing and then respacing. And we want to, as, as much speed as we have when we create the advantage, we need to have that when we respace out. A lot of times players have a tendency to pass it and stand. And I think that's one of the one of the biggest keys we talk about is respacing, is not standing still and moving. And then, um, you know, we actually didn't talk about it before, but one of the other important ways of, you know, keeping an advantage we talk about is a kill cut. Like there's different spacing automatics, right? So when the ball drives along the baseline on a baseline drive, right, we want to cut the man from the high quadrant. So from the wing on the opposite side, we'll cut. So if you think of any traditional shell drill, right? So that's the 45, right? You're talking about? 45. Yep, exactly. From the 45, we want to cut. So you think any traditional shell drill, right? There's a low man coming over to trap the box or stop the ball. And the other man, you know, sinks and drops to play two. You know, sometimes if there's a man in the dunker, you know, they have him sit on their top leg. But what happens a lot of times they turn and they're blind to that. And we can cut right behind that. And we want to kill their rotation. That's the, you know, very 
very flowery, you know, strong language to get them to remember the kill cut. And as we, we talked to our players, Corey Kispert's one of the best at it. The, those points are free. Like it's just free points in the NBA. If you know how to cut, you cut with force. You know, that's an easy layup for you. So I think the other important part of keeping an advantage is these spacing automatics. You know, when the ball goes away from you, you pull behind the basketball to provide an outlet, right? So you could have a small advantage. Oh, now I'm cut off. I pivot back, deliver the ball, and now I can keep that advantage because I've spaced behind and provided an outlet for my teammate. So there, there's a bunch of these different spacing automatics, the kill cut, the pull behind, you know, three in a row, we cut the middle guy, you know, all these different things that are simple, but we reinforce daily because you are what you emphasize. And to keep advantages, you have to have a well-spaced floor and you have to have five guys all on the same page. Thank you for bringing us back to the kill cut. I did want to cover it. That's great. And I mean, you just added incredible value with the, those kind of concepts. I'm curious about respacing then this concept of getting into space and then getting out to space. And you mentioned not holding, but is there value to certain players holding sometimes or is that personnel specific or talk to us about that kind of line in terms of emptying right away or holding for yeah. a sec? Absolutely. And, you know, like always, the answer is it depends, you know, I, and, and that's the key. And that's the beauty is. I wish I could give you some black and white answer and like, oh, every time you drive, you have to sprint to this space. Well, no, because spacing is fluid. Spacing changes every time. It depends on where everyone else is. And that's why, you know, a lot of people talk about the don't drive a drive and things like that. And, you know, sometimes I think you should. <laughs> sometimes you shouldn't. You're right. You know, sometimes one more is the right decision, but there's no there's no one size fits all thing. And that's why as many times as you can get them to make these decisions and understand and then look at like, hey. When I see this, this is a heuristic, this is a rule of thumb that I kind of do this. And the more they can see those things and have those things happen, the more we can play out of those situations and emphasize those situations, then the more times they'll make the right decision. And the beauty of basketball players is they'll show you something you never thought of in a million years. That's my favorite thing is players show you the best ideas. Some of the best plays, you know, on teams I've ever been on have come from players just showed you and like, whoa. That action's great. And once again, back to the art curation, right? That's what they do. They show you an action. And then you're able to say, that's great. Let's do this more. And let's put it into this because we know we can leverage that to create real advantages. And the players always show you the best stuff. It's can you have the discerning eye to wait and let it develop and let them play with some freedom, some mess, make some mistakes. They'll also show you some wonderful things in the process. It's one of the great things about coaching nowadays that's changed a lot is that there's very few absolutes on offense now, aren't there? Yeah, for sure. The other part is, I mean, you, you mentioned, and I kind of joke about it sometimes privately with coaches when I post a play on Twitter, and I know full well, sometimes it's all based out of conceptual decisions and offense. It's not actually a play. It looks like a play, but it was simply players making the right decision and running the right action. And that's beautiful, isn't it? When you get to that point, how much would you say of NBA offense now is more or less conceptual versus set type of actions? I think the vast majority of offense, you know, is, is really flowing into conceptual stuff. And even I think the importance of teams are really now focusing on maybe even if you run a set play, it's about what you do after that, you know, how you continue to play through a possession, the keep it, you know, or even the get it. You know, we talk a lot about how do we find action or create action when we're neutral. All right. When the play broke down, it's neutral. Now we got to find action. Right. So that's all conceptual basketball. Maybe that started as a side out of bounds that's scripted. But most of that play or whatever was the scoring action on it was created when we were neutral and we had to find action and we played off our principles and off triggers and things that can help us do these things. And I think 
you're seeing a lot of it. You know, there's so much of that uh, flowing in the NBA to how do we do things from a creative standpoint to flow through a possession. I love that. Just for coaches, um, you know, who haven't maybe studied the BDT offense or the Washington Wizards offense, when you talk about neutral, you're talking about basically no advantage and we Mm -hmm. want to create an advantage. Trigger means some type of action is going to happen. Now, are triggers at your level, are they determined to, I know it all depends, but in terms of finding the action, is it determined by somewhat by who has the ball or where they are in their space? Yes, absolutely. And I think the one other thing that I really like in these kind of create actions or neutral situations, and that one of the things that you're seeing a lot in the NBA now is kind of inverting positions mm-hmm. and playing through, you know, things that are traditionally done by a guard are now done by a big and vice versa. And I think that's really hard to guard. You know, when you have your point guard swinging the ball and setting a pick and roll for a five, you know, 16 seconds into a, a shot clock, that creates a problem for the defense. You know, that's something that they haven't worked a lot on and done a lot on. And so you can create a lot of advantages that way. And I think everything is predicated on, you know, you can make it as much or as little as you want, you know, but I think it's also having players understand roles and buy into who they are. You know, that can also be, you see Kavon Looney, you know, he's not going to sit there and maybe drive and kick. He's going to flow right into a DHO, a handoff, you know, with Steph Curry. That's what he knows how to do and how to create an advantage. So it's different within the context, but I think a lot of what we look at with the Washington Wizards is we like to play small, small pick and roll. So guard, guard, pick and roll. And we like to roll guards and try to get them underneath switches. Because most of the time in the NBA, we're seeing two coverages in, you know, guard to guard, pick and roll. And that's switch or show, like a hedge or a show, right? So there's a lot of ways to get, you know, and create advantages in these situations later in the shot clock and get underneath of switches. And we teach a lot about which angle you come from determines how you set that pick and roll to get underneath that defender and create that advantage. At the end of the day, we just want to create that split second of indecision. And now we have the best athletes in the world that can take that small advantage and create a big advantage out of it. Well, it's such a fascinating point you just shared about uh, rolling your guard, which again, traditionally people might think pick and pop with your guard. But uh, this goes back to kind of zone offense when it would be, oh, keep a big in the middle of the zone. Well, no, put your best playmaker in the middle of the zone because they make a play. And I can picture Caruso with the Bulls as that short roll guy that catches it. And now he's a great decision maker. Is that part of that mentality of kind of what you're trying to do now to get your better players in those playmaking positions? Absolutely. It's just a great way to create advantage and get into the heart of a defense, you know, with the ball and, you know, good players hands. And as much as we can do that, and as much as we can also, you know, kind of defy expectations, you know, people know how to, like, we're talking about players, we're teaching them patterns, you know, and it's about pattern recognition. Well, if this is a different pattern than they're used to seeing, then that's harder for them to guard. Now you have a five on the weak side or in the lift spot on the, you know, on the weak side. Now we're lucky we have Kristaps Porzingis and his ability to leverage his shooting and his spacing, you know, is a little different than most people. But, you know, we can space differently and create advantage and things that people aren't used to seeing and people being in different spots than they're used to being in. And we can really create advantages off of that. Yeah, it's such a great example of you're you're just trying to do something that's going to force a reaction uh from the defense so i love that idea of uh, distorting their pattern recognition just great and then you mentioned this kind of as a trend and uh when you mentioned it to me i mean certainly you notice it in the nba playoffs so much this concept of who is in the corner and mm-hmm. is it like it's almost like this whole chess mass match within teams about who they're putting in the corners and we used to think it's always a shooter right danny green stands in the corner makes threes gets paid a lot 
So talk to us about a little bit of this trend of kind of having non-shooters in the corner or doing different things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just about, you know, it's such a chess match in the NBA. And especially as you get now to the playoffs, you know, these are the best of the best who have a lot of time to prepare and then play each other multiple times, you know, in a row. You have to look, search for any advantage you can find. So I think what you're seeing a lot of times, and you want to put out your best players on the floor. Sometimes that player maybe is not a great shooter. So how can I use them? How can I utilize their strengths and fit it within my team concept? And I think one of the things you're seeing, like you said, is we're putting non-shooters into the corner. And the reason being, now you can do a couple of things. You know, one, almost similar to the kill cut, like I talked about, now when they're in the corner and their man goes to help, right, the, you can just follow his footsteps right behind and have lobs to the rim or drop-offs if need be. And now you're not congesting that space. You know, now you're opening and expanding this space to now create that space. And I think the other thing you see too, like obviously that one is tough to guard. Now you see these uphill handoffs, get game, DHOs coming out of the corner. And, you know, kind of the, the refrain might be like, oh, well, I don't have Steph Curry to come off this handoff or, you know, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. You know, you can create these advantages, right? It doesn't have to be for a flying off wild three that only a few people in the world can do. Right. It can also be to come off. Now you force that defender who is way off in help position. Now you got a downhill drive. You got pocket pass. You got whatever you want. It's once again, just finding different ways to distort the defense and create advantages in unique situations and in unique spacing situations. I love watching the NBA now and watching the different variations of handoffs. I mean, it's just incredible. And one of them, I don't know what you guys call it, but I call it the flip screen where it's actually when you're going to run a stagger handoff or a zoom, somebody sprints ahead and then flips back to set the screen. So it, again, distorts the pattern. Um, just just brilliant stuff. I mean, is there more we can do? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I think there's no limit to what we can do. You know, that's the beauty of it is there's so many iterations. There's so many possible things. And, and players are showing us wonderful things. You know, you're seeing, you know, we've long called it, you know, in San Antonio forever, we called it Verizhao when you sprint it up to the level of the pick and roll and then flip the angle at the last second to the other side. Guys are doing that in dribble handoffs now. You know, and we're teaching that, you know, they're doing this. You're seeing even in the way you hand the ball off. Look at uh, Sabonis with the Sacramento Kings. You know, he's kind of really shown it, but dropping the ball and moving and shifting the angle of your screen. Andrew Bogut used to be the best at on a handoff. He would drop it between his legs. You know, there's so many different angles and iterations and spacing that you can go through and you can cycle through. And it's just about being creative, um, you know, inverting what you would traditionally do, you know, putting a big here, guard there, you know, whatever it may be, you know, constricting space in one space to create space in another space. You know, and it's these just little patterns that you can take to traditional concepts and create something brand new that looks, you know, just like it's fascinating how many different things you can do by just in a weird way, the best way for creativity is to work within constraints sometimes, right? If the world is just your oyster, you can come up with no ideas. But if you're like, I have to work out of this spacing, this setup, you can come up with a lot of interesting ideas. Yeah. Structure to unstructure type of concept. And it all starts from a structure. And I mean, you reminded me as you were saying some of those examples, obviously you were with Quinn Snyder for many years and just so many things with that roster that you guys did with dribble handoffs, including like, dribble under the player you're going to hand off to and then come back with the dribble misdirection which i so, thought it was just crazy so a, here's here's an example of how that came to be so we had a three-on-three draft workout and um in this draft workout you know we were watching it happen this guy named ray spalding who played at louisville went to hand off to a kid 
he was denied. He crossed over, turned, and flipped the handoff. And Quinn and I just happened to be sitting next to each other on the workout, and I was like, that is fantastic. I was like, I've never seen anything like that in my life. I was like, that's great. And so we talked about it, and we said, well, we need to use this. And then later that year, about halfway through the year, we got um, Kyle Korver. And we're like, oh, this is the guy to use it because everyone denies Kyle on handoff. And Kyle's such a dynamic shooter going to his right hand. So we talked about we ran like an angle, step up, pick and roll, pop Derek favors. And we had Derek drive, dribble at Kyle Korver. And Kyle would overrun it. Derek would flip and handoff. And Kyle would come back to his preferred right hand and tee up an open three because of them overplaying. It was, and that's the example of like players show you. Would have never come up with that on our own. But thanks to Ray Spalding, he gave a, a really cool, cool dribble handoff action for us. Forever a legend now. Forever yeah. a legend now. But thank you. That's sharing such a great example of kind of how some of these things uh, occur. And because uh, I think we're always sitting there wondering, I mean, especially when I watch your league type stuff, I'm wondering, where did that action come from? Like, who came right. up with that? And, right. and you're right. Like, most of the time, it's just players playing in practice. And then all of a sudden, they do something. And it triggers something for you as a coach to say, oh, wait a minute, I can do something with that. Yeah, exactly. And the other layer to it, too, is kind of building off the, you know, you're more creative and constraints. Like you have a set that you're running or some action, some concept that you run, and teams start to deny it or take it away. You know, it's like, all right, what's the solution now? How do we build the next layer to it? And then, you know, sometimes the players will show you, sometimes you'll come up with it. But that's really how things can really develop. Like how, did, how would you ever come up with that? Well, this is how the defense was playing it. This was a coverage we ran into. This was a solution that developed. Which speaks to a method all the way back to the way you are talked about teaching and I talk about teaching. It's like, okay, sometimes just, again, create the environment for them to do this, say this dribble handoff type thing, and then just talk to the defense about the different types of coverages and see what the offense comes up with with coverage solutions. And especially when you're dealing with the level of players you are, they come up with some pretty cool coverage solutions that can help us all. And uh, that's pretty cool. Um, Talk to us a little bit about analytics of ball movement versus off the dribble threes and isos for the best players. Because I I love this idea of kind of like, what are the analytics that help us and support these some of these things? Yeah, so it's fascinating. This is an interesting, you know, debate and, and thought that I've, you know, had with some people I've worked with and some of the analytics people and staff. And, you know, something, the initial thought and kind of the germ of this idea came in Utah when we really believed in blender basketball, we called it, you know, Igor Kokoshkov had the term and it was just about it's the advantage basketball to get it, keep it, use it stuff. You know, we were really good at driving and kicking, creating open threes, right? And you'd say, hey, analytically, that's great, right? You know, the ball is changing the size of the floor. We're doing all these things. Everyone's involved, you know, because that's a big Quinn thing is we want everyone involved in the game because that way they feel more engaged. They feel more of a part of it. It's more their own. There's skin in the game, right? If you're just running you know, sideline to sideline, corner to corner, you know, just running up and down, running wind sprints, sometimes you don't feel engaged in the game, right? And we want to be involved and feel like we're in it. So when everyone's involved in the blender and doing that and we're creating open threes and shots at the rim, that's great analytically, right? Those are the shots that we want. We really believe in that. But the problem is, and you see it a little with the Warriors, is that leads to turnovers, mm-hmm. right? So by definition, the longer you play in the shot clock, in any fashion, even if you just stand there and isolate, the longer you play in the shot clock, the more chance you have for a turnover or a less advantageous shot, right? We know that. We want to play faster. We want to play, get up the court. We want to get the ball across half court as quickly as possible. We have much time in the shot clock to play through the possession and get a great look for our team, right? So that's analytically what we know. But the, the downside, the cost, you know, the cost benefit of it 
is the turnovers. But like I said, you know, our belief was always the Pep Guardiola style that, hey, we move the ball to move the defense, and this is advantageous for us. But then you look at some teams in the NBA, and it's not, I'm not going to name names or point out like it's good or bad, but sometimes you like, you have a player that's so great, him isolating is worth 1.1 points per possession, right? But it's like, okay, we're not going to get that good doing other stuff. But is there a cost to that on a human perspective and on a psychological perspective that wears you down over the course of an 82 game season? And at the same time, like we talk about, you know, decision training and making decisions, all this. If my only decision is catch and shoot three when this player deems me worthy of shooting it, that's hard, right? And then in the highest leverage situations and someone runs you off the line, now what? You know, now in the playoffs or late in a game when, you know, the decisions aren't as clean and they're muddled and it's difficult, are you able to do those? So maybe you make a sacrifice of, of some efficiency, right? We're going to run a slightly less efficient brand of basketball, but not much. You know, we're still playing the analytically correct way. We're getting the ball over quickly. We're shooting high value shots, threes, rim, getting fouled, getting to the line. We want those shots. Those are what we believe in. We're offensive rebounding to take advantage of that. You know, all these things, but we're going to move the ball side to side. We're going to create advantages because everyone's involved. You know, everyone's involved in the offense. We're teaching people how to be decision makers. They feel vested and invested in the team. And now we'll get more benefits long term because they feel a part of it. And they're more invested to play defense on the other end, too. Then we're playing slightly less, you know, like statistically slightly less great basketball and higher chance of turnover. But we think the long term value of that is more. So, so fascinating. So fascinating, because I, I do remember that you guys did a study on that. And uh, the, the challenge is, again, that the ball reversal is not necessarily creating the advantage coaches think. That, that's yeah. really the thing, right? And I think that's what coaches always say, oh, we reverse the ball so many times because it creates an advantage. And that's not necessarily true, right? No, we want to reverse the ball to create movement in the defense to then use a trigger to trigger an advantage, right? The defense, the moving the ball is to move the defense and keep them slightly out of position and help position so they can't just load up to one side of the floor. And then the other part of it is the value of having players involved. And that is definitely a huge part of this equation. We can talk about old Houston Rocket offense, you know, with Dan Antonio and stuff. And it's like, that was really smart to do that. But there is a sacrifice as much as there's a benefit is what you're saying to choosing these different styles. So are you finding that the best way might be to blend them, to marry those concepts together in some way? Yeah, absolutely. I think you want to do what's, you know, the right math decision. We want to make as many good math decisions as we can. But also we want to know that we coach people, not robots. And that, you know, we have to have this ability to understand the psychology of them like sometimes as coaches we don't put ourselves in their shoes especially you know lesser players you know a role player that's maybe like you know he has to run to the corner and stand there every possession that would suck i wouldn't want to do that that sounds boring you know it's like it's much more fun to come up and run a pick and roll or handle in a pick and roll and make a decision and do all those things and obviously there's a time and a place for that it's not smart to run 100 pick and rolls with that guy you know but if in the flow of an offense against a scrambled defense. And when we're in a, an advantage situation, I want that player making a decision. So in a high leverage moment, he can make a decision. So I want to talk about this a little bit deeper because I think where it really shows up, especially in the NBA, is end game situations where maybe set plays and plays that have been run with a lot of movement 
aren't run as much at the end of games because teams tend to get very direct to give it to their best mm-hmm. player. Is that is that fair? That's kind of what we see more or less. Yeah, and I think that's that you're you're hinting at a very important point here. Is over the course of a lot of possessions, we want to do the most efficient thing. But as the clock, like we play a clock game, right? So as the end of the game nears, the value of an efficient shot versus just a shot changes. Right. And the way the defenses are playing you. So at the end of the games, we just want a shot. The we don't need like the versus, you know, 1.1 points per possession versus 0.86 doesn't matter with eight seconds left on the clock. Right. We need any shot we can get in eight seconds. So I think that's another thing is that as the clock goes down, now you just need to get a shot. And so that's why you see those situations at the end of the game is now we can control who's getting that shot. We can put our best player in the position to get that shot and we can put them in optimal spacing. So if there's a double team or if anything or where he most likes to operate, now you can control a lot of those variables in a situation when you most need a bucket. Youth basketball coaches that are listening. Okay, I am coaching AAU now. I'm coaching under 11 girls basketball. And I see it like I get it. It's smart. You run your best player ISO, your best player pick and roll, two players involved, everyone else standing around. The sacrifice at that level is development, right? Sacrifices development. And as you said, the value of having all players involved. Now you go to practice and tell those players, hey, work on your game. But meanwhile, in the game, all they do is stand in one spot and watch. Zach, this has been an unbelievable deep dive into, uh, you know, basketball and holistic basketball. And yeah, I'm curious for you as an assistant coach, you've been an NBA Summer League head coach. Now, what are some other things for you developmentally that you can keep working on and working towards? to work towards a future possibility of being a head coach? I think the what I would say is intentionality. I think obviously people have goals and aspirations and things like that, but to be where your feet are, and it's what I tell a lot of young guys in this business, honestly, is not to think about the next thing, not to worry about the next thing or what could happen next. Just be where you are and be the best version and the best servant for who you're working for because everyone's working for someone. Other than the owner, everyone's working for someone. Right. So how can I help that person? How can I make, you know, do what I can to help them and be the best possible version of that? And to always continually learn and grow is to always be curious. I try to be curious about everything and try to learn as much as I can about other sports, about this sport and deep dive as much as I can, because that's what helps you grow. Like you have to be curious about a lot of things. But more than anything, it's just being intentional and trying to think about ways that I can be a better servant, be a better assistant coach help, you know, Wes be the best head coach he can be. You know, that's where my focus has to lie and how I can help serve him best. Well said. Well said. Well, Zach, thank you for sharing the game with us. Just tremendous stuff. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game and to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.